You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Yes, sir. Are you listening? Yes, sir, you. Plastics. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 14th day of March, 2010. I'd like to welcome all of the listeners and invite them all, as always, to check into the websites CorbettReport.com, ClimateGate.tv, AlqaedaDoesn'tExist.com, and ReportageBook.com, where you can find out more information about my forthcoming book, Reportage, Essays on the New World Order. Also, please remember to check out those sites that help to support our work and broadcast it to more and more people, including RadioForAll.net, Archive.org, CascadiaPublicRadio.org, and ZeroPointRadio.com. Also this week, I'd like to direct people to the website of Richard Grove, TragedyAndHope.com, which has been recently renovated to feature the work of members of the Tragedy and Hope community, including yours truly, James Corbett of The Corbett Report. It promises to be a great site with a lot of varied content from very different types of independent media producers, so people should definitely stay tuned to tragedyandhope.com, and of course, check out my links there as well. And on the note of Richard Grove and tragedyandhope.com, we still have numerous copies of the 2020 hindsight censorship on the frontline DVD left to offer people who donate to the Corbett Report. Details of the 2020 hindsight DVD promotion are available on the front page of the website at the moment, right under the video player. So please, by all means, if you haven't yet done so, take a click, watch the movie in its entirety online, and if you'd like the DVD rum, please consider donating to The Corbett Report or any of the other websites that are hosting this special. I've almost collected enough funds now for the lavalier microphone that I was talking about on the beginning of the podcast last week, and if I still continue to receive the gracious support of the listeners out there, I will start putting funds towards a new used secondhand laptop to replace the laptop which I currently use as my secondary computer for the website, which is now seven years old and barely usable. And on one final housekeeping note, to all of those who have donated so far, of course I offer a hefty thank you, and I have also been attempting to contact all of those people who have donated so far this year in order to get their address details so I can send the DVD. If I haven't contacted you by the end of this week, please send me an email reminder as you may have gotten lost in the mix. And on that note, let's get to today's Sunday Update. 
James Corbett of CorbettReport.com with your Sunday update for this 14th day of March 2010. And now for the real news. In our top story this week, ABC News is facing severe criticism after airing an inaccurate and misleading report on the 9-11 truth movement. The report, filed by Chris Bury for the network's Nightline program, purported to be coverage of the recent Treason in America conference in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, but appears to be a desperate attempt by the corporate media to tie legitimate questions about 9-11 into random acts of deranged violence committed by people like Pentagon shooter John Patrick Bedell. Now, critics are alleging that the ABC News team hounded their interview subjects for soundbites in fiercely combative interrogations, and they have the -the behind-the-scenes footage to prove it. This is what they aired on the report from an interview with celebrated FBI whistleblower Colleen Rowley, Time Person of the Year for 2002 and the woman who exposed FBI management's deliberate efforts to block FBI field agents from foiling the 9-11 attacks in August 2001. A lot of the people here believe that the government helped murder innocent Americans. Do you share their belief, the belief of the people at this convention? Well, you know, of course, anytime you get a group together, um, I don't care what group it is. So do you believe it or not? Uh, Do I believe what? Do you believe that the American government helped kill innocent Americans? Well, when you, again, let me, uh, you're you're kind of trying to almost put me on a No, well, let me do it. You know what, you remind me of when I was an FBI agent. Okay, let me do it it (laughs) a different way. No, what I believe is that the full truth, and actually the 9-11 commissioners now say this too, is not known. Absolutely. And this is what they did not air. On a telephone call, our acting supervisor is on the phone and says, don't you know this is a guy who could fly into the World Trade Center? And he says this in August of 2001. Now, when that is not going to be told, when the, uh, this was the Joint Intelligence Committee initially, when that is not going to be really uh, offered and talked about, and there are minders in the government that every time you're interviewed, uh, I was was never interviewed by myself. but yeah, you guys have a strong, it just seems to me, again, I've been interviewed by many, many people, and I've actually given interviews a lot, many interviews about 9-11. I've never been so aggressively uh, asked these kinds of questions, almost as if you are a defense attorney, like I'm the, an FBI agent on the witness stand, and you're trying to get me to, to uh, you know, say a word where, you know, complicit and these types of The report is also coming under fire for concentrating almost entirely on the young filmmakers behind Loose Change and completely ignoring the architects and engineers, first responders, victims, family members, and others who may have made it difficult for ABC to characterize the movement as a collection of conspiracy theorists. Do you believe elements of the U.S. government murdered American citizens? I believe that it's highly possible that there were definitely elements within the Bush administration that either were criminally negligent or criminally complicit in the events. Complicit, you mean they allowed the killing of innocent Americans? One way or another, they allowed the killing of innocent Americans. The only question is how responsible they were for it. Why would they do that? Why wouldn't they? Let me ask you an honest question. Are you going to do a sit-down interview with Bob McElveen? I don't know. So that's a no. I would urge you to do that. So that's the thing. You're here to interview us, but you're not here to interview a family member. Why is that? Why is that? I'm curious. I told you I don't know. You don't know. You're the producer, aren't you? No, I'm the reporter. You're the reporter? Well, why can't you at least sit down with Bob McElveen and interview him just for the hell of it? I'm not sure. 
I would urge you to. I, I, would I urge mean, you we, to, this has been a very personal interview. Because you've actually been here, you've had an opportunity to speak to all these people that could actually talk to you about the loved ones they lost, the actual pain and grief that they've had to go through, and instead you're sitting here interviewing us. So why is that? Why is it easier to interview us than the actual people who are affected by 9-11? Because you don't want to interview them. No, no, I don't you're think so. Because you're not doing your job. You are not doing your job. Okay. Either way, plain and simple. Thank you. Nice interview. Nice to meet you. Chris Beery's report is noteworthy for its inclusion of a comment from 9-11 Commission co-chair Lee Hamilton, who appears to dismiss conspiracy theories about what really happened on 9-11 in a soundbite that may or may not have been gathered specifically for this report. It's unclear what theories Hamilton is disparaging, as none are actually addressed in the attack piece, but it is evidently not the fact that the 9-11 Commission report does not even mention World Trade Center 7, which collapsed directly into its own footprint at freefall acceleration on the afternoon of 9-11 despite not having been hit by a plane, nor the fact that 9-11 Commission report claims that the source of the funding for the attacks is of no practical significance, despite the fact that the very men who would go on to lead the congressional investigation into the attacks were enjoying breakfast with one of the suspected financiers on the morning of 9-11. Nor is it the fact that six of the ten 9-11 commissioners, including Lee Hamilton, believe the commission was deliberately obstructed by the Bush administration. Even Lee Hamilton, the co-chair of the 9-11 commission itself, admits to us that the process he headed up was seriously flawed. So there are all kinds of reasons. We thought we were set up to fail. We got started late. We had a very short time frame. Indeed, we had to get it extended. Uh, we did not have enough money. They were, they were afraid we were going to hang somebody. In a positive development, ABC News announced last month that dwindling viewership is leading them to close all of their bureaus across the U.S. except Washington, and that half of their domestic correspondents will be losing their jobs. No word yet on whether Chris Bury will be one of the reporters to be let go. In other news this week, Iceland is positioning itself to become the world leader in free speech and investigative journalism. A backlash against government-imposed censorship over information related to the country's economic collapse has given birth to a movement calling for free access to information, including leaked documents that otherwise would be subject to an injunction. Now this movement has given rise to a proposal known as IMI, the Icelandic Modern Media Initiative. IMI is seeking to pass legislation to protect journalistic sources and prevent co corporations from leveling injunctions on uncomfortable information. The group scoured the statutes of countries like Belgium, France, Scotland and the United States for the strongest legal wording on issues like source protection, protection of communications, protection from unfair libel charges and lumped them into a proposal for a single law. One last aspect is crucial allowing news organizations and journalists from overseas to access computer servers in Iceland to host sensitive content in order to try to keep them beyond the reach of repressive governments and courts. On a related note, in continuing coverage of S-372, a bill pending in the U.S. Senate which threatens to strip national security whistleblowers of even the semblance of legal protection, the Corbett Report this week talked to FBI whistleblowers Jane Turner and Sibel Edmonds. Now, remember, I told you after I was, uh, well, it was forced out of the FBI here after many, many years of exemplary service, the head of this division, and we have paperwork to show that the executives back at FBI HQ not only tried to discredit 
discredit uh, me, but my allegations, that kind of activity would happen if this uh, redlining of this bill occurs. This is making something really, really bad worse. And that's the position we are in, and this is why we have joined the National Whistleblower Center, saying, well, you're right. And we are glad that you're bringing it up. And, uh, and we support your position, and as long as we emphasize that the current, uh, <laughs> current system in place is truly terrible to start with. So it won't be a big hooray, even if, let's say, this doesn't go through or, or if these provisions are not inserted in it, we won't be celebrating as national security whistleblowers. We would just say, oh, well, good that it didn't get worse. <laughs> Finally this week, Belgian farmers are protesting the EU's recent decision to allow genetically modified Amflora potatoes into the EU. In the potato-growing heartland outside Brussels, the anger rumbles like spuds in the sorting machines. Farmers here don't want anything to do with the European Union decision to allow a high-performing genetically modified potato called Amflora for use in paper, adhesives, and textiles. Farmers, concerned that the GM potatoes will taint the natural starch potatoes already growing in the EU, are being told by GMO manufacturers to simply keep GM crops separated from natural crops. In 2000, Canadian canola farmer Percy Schmeiser lost a case against GM manufacturer Monsanto in which GM Roundup-ready seeds blew into his field from a neighboring farm. Monsanto won damages from Schmeiser for patent infringement on the patented GMO organism. The decision was upheld by the Supreme Court of Canada in 2004, but the court did not require him to pay Monsanto in damages that the lower court had ordered. Although the Amflora potatoes in the EU are not intended for human consumption, there is concern they will be fed to livestock and end up in the food chain. Despite studies that indicate GMPs cause lung damage in mice, GM soy causes sterility and death in lab rats, GM corn alters organ rate and urine chemistry in rats, studies that show antibiotic-resistant marker genes in GM foods can lead to the creation of antibiotic-resistant diseases, and studies showing that GM genes can jump the species barrier, barrier and cause bacteria to mutate, GM food manufacturers still claim their crops are perfectly safe for human consumption. Now, stay tuned to CorbettReport.com for episode 121 of the Corbett Report podcast, Know Your Toxins, BPA, where we discuss bisphenol A, a gender-bending estrogen mimicker which has been added to plastics for decades. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to episode 121 of the Corbett Report. Know your toxins, BPA. Longtime listeners to this podcast will be well aware from episodes like episode 74, The Inbred Elite's Million Year Plan, and episode 94, You Are Being Sterilized, that our world is awash in a chemical cocktail that is affecting our bodies in ways that medical research is only now beginning to understand. Or at least that's what we're being told for the most part. But today we're going to be learning about one particular chemical in that chemical soup in which we are awash, and that is bisphenol A, BPA, a substance that has been in the news quite a bit over the last few years and which I've even talked about on this podcast before, so maybe my listeners will be familiar with it. But today we're going to be examining it in much greater detail, 
So firstly, in order to understand what bisphenol A is and how it functions on the body, we need to understand a certain key system in the human body, the endocrine system. The basic units of this system are special kinds of glands. Unlike other glands, endocrine glands secrete their products, called hormones, directly into the bloodstream. The powerful hormones travel everywhere in the body, influencing every aspect of life in very specific ways. Many parts of the body secrete hormones, but six major types of glands are of particular importance to adults. They are the islets of Langerhans in the pancreas, the thyroid and parathyroids, the adrenals, the gonads, and in the head, the pituitary. Every major endocrine gland is a highly structured organ. Throughout each run the smallest blood vessels, capillaries. Hormones are secreted into the capillaries. Through a microscope, it is possible to see red blood cells as they move through the capillaries and veins. Hormones, however, are not actually visible. They are in solution in the blood plasma, just as salt is in solution in seawater and is invisible. The hormones enter the general circulation. Eventually, they filter back to the capillaries elsewhere in the body. Unlike the red blood cells, hormones travel freely through the capillary walls. Though they travel everywhere in the body, hormones only influence specific target cells. A hormone may have relatively few targets, affecting only a few kinds of cells. A different hormone may affect nearly every cell in the body. Every target cell has a chemical receptor, which the hormone specifically fits as a key specifically fits a lock. The receptor may be on the surface of the cell or inside it. All right, so now we know a little bit about the endocrine system and how it secretes hormones into the bloodstream to regulate the body. And we also know, and this is an important point to keep in mind for later, that Hormones affect certain cells because certain cells will have receptors in order to receive certain hormones. We know that the hormones will affect things like mood and growth and development and tissue function and metabolism. And, well, how does this have to relate to bisphenol A, a chemical compound which is found in many household products? Well, we'll come to that in just a little bit, but first let's tackle the question of what exactly is bisphenol A. Let's tackle that head-on by going to the wonderful and helpful and informative bisphenol-a.org, which one has to do quite a bit of clicking around to find out that it is in fact a website helpfully provided to us as a public service of the American Chemistry Council, which, quote, represents the leading companies engaged in the business of chemistry, including significant business groups such as the Plastics Division and the Chlorine Chemistry Division. So I'm sure they have no commercial interests whatsoever in giving us skewed data about bisphenol A. So keeping that in mind... Quote, bisphenol A is an important industrial chemical that is used primarily to make polycarbonate plastic and epoxy resins, both of which are used in a wide variety of applications. For example, polycarbonate is used in eyeglass lenses, medical equipment, water bottles, digital media, for example, CDs and DVDs. 
Cell phones, consumer electronics, computers and other business equipment, electrical equipment, household appliances, safety shields, construction glazing, sports safety equipment, and automobiles. Among the many uses for epoxy resins are industrial floorings, adhesives, industrial protective coatings, powder coatings, automotive primers, can coatings, and printed circuit boards. The first reported synthesis of BPA was from Thomas Zink of the University of Marburg, Germany. Zink acknowledged in his paper that the synthesis of BPA from phenol and acetone was based on chemical reactions previously reported by others as well as unpublished work from thesis dissertations conducted at the University of Marburg. His paper reporting the synthesis of BPA and a number of related compounds was published in 1905. Zink reported key physical properties of BPA, example, molecular composition, melting point, solubility in common solvents, but did not propose any application or use for BPA or the other materials he synthesized. In 1953, Dr. Hermann Schnell of Bayer in Germany and Dr. Dan Fox of General Electric in the United States independently developed manufacturing processes for a new plastic material, polycarbonate, using BPA as the starting material. Polycarbonate plastic was found to have a unique combination of very useful properties, in particular optical clarity, shatter resistance, and high heat resistance, which have made polycarbonate an important part of everyday life in a wide variety of applications. Commercial production began in 1957 in the United States and in 1958 in Europe. About this same time, epoxy resins were developed with versatility to meet a wide range of industrial and consumer needs. Commercial production of BPA began in the 1950s when large-scale uses for polycarbonate plastic and epoxy resins were developed and has grown worldwide along with the continued growth of the uses for these materials. End quote. Well, all of that just gives me the warm fuzzies and makes me think that bisphenol A is the greatest thing since sliced bread. There are only two little details that we need to know in order to get the complete picture of BPA bisphenol A. And that's one, it's an estrogen mimicking compound, and two, it's killing us. My name is Fred Bonsal. I'm a professor of biology at the University of Missouri in Columbia. Most of what we know, with a few exceptions, come from studies of animals rats, mice, laboratory experiments. And what we've seen in those studies is that there's brain damage and the animals exposed to very low amounts of, say, bisphenol A show attention deficit disorder, hyperactivity, and neurochemical changes that are associated with ADHD in humans that is a decrease in the neurotransmitter dopamine which is also implicated in uh, causing Parkinson's disease. So we have neurochemical changes, brain changes, hyperaggression. The other thing we see is the entire male reproductive system is abnormal and that's very easy to understand because this is an estrogen and estrogens during development are known to lead to abnormalities in the male reproductive system. In the male, it also causes prostate cancer. That is expressed later in life. In females, the interesting thing about this chemical is it causes chromosomal damage in the eggs in a female's ovaries. And 
in it's implicated in miscarriage in animal studies and there is actually a human study in Japan where women with elevated levels of bisphenol A were the women who were repeatedly miscarrying never able to have a successful pregnancy and so the animal data and the human data are identical the other thing bisphenol A causes in animals is polycystic ovarian disease called PCOS and uterine fibroids, the major source of infertility and hysterectomy in women. And then finally, everybody knows there's an obesity epidemic. Mm -hmm. This chemical causes obesity when you're exposed to it during an early life, and it leads to type 2 diabetes. And um, the final one that women are, of course, concerned with when you're exposed to this during the period when the breast tissue is differentiating later on in life it causes breast cancer. You basically just listed most of the major public health kind of problems in the United States. 30 years ago diabetes, type 2 diabetes, was called adult onset diabetes. Mm -hmm. It's now occurring in five-year-olds. That had never happened before. And if you look at the incidence of diabetes and the production of bisphenol A, they parallel each other identically. One of the other things to emphasize is we are most concerned about these chemicals because if you disturb development of a baby, the consequences of that are forever. Yeah. One of the things that we found out in the Vioxx scandal mm -hmm. that it took a whistleblower from within the FDA to come out and say the FDA has all of the evidence uh, that Vioxx is killing people. But this isn't this is according to the FDA regulator who turned in the FDA essentially. He said this is an agency that once they make a decision, they do not want the public to think that they make wrong decisions. And so what their strategy is, is to try to deny that they would ever make a mistake, even at the expense of a major public health disaster. This is an agency that doesn't acknowledge error. The FDA approving a dangerous compound at the expense of the very people they're supposed to be protecting? Never. The loss of confidence in the American government has emerged as an issue in this presidential campaign and in our American life. Our own NBC News poll tells us more than a third of Americans have little or no confidence in their government. This next story may help show why. A report out today says the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, the government agency responsible for safeguarding our health and safety, failed to properly warn against the dangers of a chemical commonly found in everyday plastic items, including baby bottles. We get more from NBC's Tom Costello. In a country seemingly awash in plastics and cans, renewed concern that a key ingredient approved by the FDA may lead to serious health problems. After an independent group of scientists accused the FDA of 
failing to consider all the evidence. From laboratory studies and from a number of different scientific peer review panels, we know that we do not want to expose our children to this chemical. Bisphenol A, or BPA, is used in plastics to make them hard and shatterproof and often carries the number seven. Researchers have found BPA can mimic estrogen and disrupt hormonal and brain development in animals. In humans, especially small children, the concern is that BPA might damage the immune, reproductive, and neurological systems. My advice to parents is to take active steps to limit your child's exposure to bisphenol A. Specifically, this means avoid any plastic that has the number 7 on the bottom of the bottle. Already, many retailers and manufacturers have banned BPA products on their own. But the FDA today again insisted BPA levels are too low to cause concern. While the American Chemistry Council says it will follow the agency's advice should it change, Canada has already banned BPA. Here we go. In Atlanta, mom Carrie Loth writes an online newsletter about natural parenting and says many of her readers are confused. When parents hear information that tells them that BPA is safe, but then they find out that in Canada it's been pulled off the market, um, that makes them quite wary. For critics, including its own review panel, today's report is further evidence that the FDA's processes are flawed. Now the agency is under pressure to review all the BPA evidence. Tom Costello, NBC News, Washington. Well, okay, maybe just this once and that whole aspartame thing. But other than that, I'm sure there are only a few thousand other examples we could point to. Well, yes, certainly we can point to the way in which the FDA signally failed in its duty in protecting the American public once again by not only approving this endocrine system disrupting substance, but by then sticking up for it at every possible opportunity. For example, in August of 2008, we have this report from WebMD.com. Bisphenol A safe, says FDA. Quote, Bisphenol A, the controversial plastic chemical, is safe at typical exposure levels from food and drink, according to an FDA draft report. Bisphenol A, also called BPA, is found in polycarbonate plastic, including some water bottles and baby bottles, and in epoxy resins, which are used to line metal products, including canned foods. The draft report states that based on lab tests in rodents, infants and adults are exposed to bisphenol A levels that are below toxic levels. Safe or safety means that there is reasonable certainty in the minds of competent scientists that the substance is not harmful under the intended conditions of use. But complete certainty of absolute harmlessness is scientifically impossible to establish, the draft report states. End quote. And that is exactly the loophole that they will use in every single instance of complete incompetence or worse on the part of the FDA. But I fear that by dwelling on the failure of these agencies which are designed to so supposedly protect the public from these types of harmful chemicals is to miss the point because quite obviously in this case it's quite easily demonstrable that BPA's estrogen mimicking properties were not only well known at the time that it began to be heavily used in plastics but that it had been specifically designed for that purpose and originally tested for it. More on that from Ken Spector of LivingEcho.com, who interviewed Natural Resources Defense Council staff scientist Sarah Jansen in October 2009 about BPA. 
BPA was a chemical that was intentionally developed way back in the 1930s to mimic the female sex hormone estrogen. It was actually going to be used as a pharmaceutical to promote healthy pregnancies. Around the same time, another pharmaceutical was developed called DES, which was given to women in the 1940s through the 1970s to promote healthy pregnancies. This actually turned out to be a tragic mistake. DES caused a number of different types of cancers and abnormalities in the daughters and sons of women who took this drug while they were pregnant. BPA was never used for that purpose, but instead became very commonly used in our everyday products, polycarbonate plastics and epoxy resins, which are used to line food and beverage containers. So instead of taking it intentionally as a drug, we're all being unintentionally exposed through use of these products. When was it that BPA started to appear in products, and why is it in products in the first place? It started to be used in the 1950s, but use has increased quite dramatically over the last several decades. When you link together BPA molecules, you can create a plastic called polycarbonate plastic, which is a hard, clear, shatterproof plastic. It was most commonly used in things like baby bottles, sippy cups, and reusable water bottles that were popular with backpackers and hikers, like the Nalgene bottles. It's also shown to be a very good adhesive so it's been very good for using in things like food packaging applications. In the food cans, it protects the food inside the can from having a metallic taste migrating into the food. It also has helped to protect the can from corrosion, especially when acidic foods like tomatoes are placed inside the can. Um, but unfortunately, the BPA doesn't stay in, that, in either application. It doesn't stay in place. It leaches into the food or into the beverages and then when we consume those products, we're ingesting it into our bodies. There's been some biomonitoring done by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, which has found that over 90% of the U.S. population carries residues of this chemical in their bodies. We also know that it's relatively quickly broken down and excreted from our bodies. But the fact that we can measure it so consistently and so frequently in people means that we're taking it in as fast as we can um, process it and excrete it out. And it means that we're constantly being exposed. So just to get this straight, two decades after the estrogen-mimicking qualities of this compound were well understood, and even after this compound had been specifically tested as a synthetic estrogen, it just happens to be chosen from among the thousands of different chemicals that could make plastics to be the plastic that would be used in thousands of daily household products, including such things as baby bottles, where it would be destined to leach into foods, drinks, and other substances, and then into our bodies, and that this could not have been foreseen by anyone? Indeed, it seems so overwhelmingly preposterous to believe that this particular compound was just accidentally chosen, and the fact that it's an estrogen mimicker was just a side effect that no one had thought about. It seems so preposterously unlikely that we come up against a certain wall which we have come up against many times in this podcast, and that's the wall of incredulity. We either have to be one of the co coincidence theorists and simply accept that every time there is something that goes disastrously wrong, even though it was overwhelmingly obvious to people in the know that this was a problem, we have to simply choose to dismiss that knowledge 
and decide that it was done out of incompetence. This is most people's natural psychological defense mechanism when they come up against this type of material, because the alternative, for many, is too ghastly to contemplate. But unfortunately, it's all too easy to document. Elitist Bertrand Russell, the third Earl Russell, from 1872 to 1970. A Nobel Prize winner, of course he was worked on the education of young children, was also an award winner of the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization. That's the big UNESCO that plans to create a, a global culture through indoctrination of the children. He is a highly respected man by the excessively rich dominant minority. In his book, The Scientific Outlook, written in 1931, he recommended, perhaps by means of injections and drugs and chemicals, the population could be induced to bear whatever its scientific masters may decide to be for its good. I'll read that last part again for the heart of thinking. Lord Bertrand Russell in The Scientific Outlook, his book, written in 1931. 1931. This has been going on a long time. He recommended that perhaps by means of injections and drugs and chemicals, the population could be induced to bear whatever its scientific masters may decide to be for its good. That's on page 256. Daily Mail. Baby bottles containing a controversial gender-bending chemical are to be barred in Canada. You know the reason is that they're banning it in Canada? Because people like myself, they made such a stink about it that they couldn't ignore it. So it's the first country to introduce, introduce such a ban. BPA mimics the female sex hormone estrogen. That's exactly but Charles Galton Darwin said they'd put into the men. Exactly what he said they'd put into the male. BPA mimics the female sex hormone estrogen and has been linked to birth defects in boys, heart disease in adults, and lower sperm counts and breast cancer in animals. They don't know what causes breast cancer. It's a big mystery. The chemical is an ingredient of polycarbonate plastic, a lightweight shatterproof version used for CD cases, drink bottles, special lenses and food containers. Why would they put the most dangerous toxin in food containers when they knew from the late 1800s what it did to the male? Why would they do that? Oh, they just screwed up again, eh? For all you coincidence theories out there. It also crops up in the resins used to line food cans. Of course it does. Make loose paints and dental sealants. Studies have shown that BPA can leach from plastic bottles into their liquid contents. That was put up in 2008 from the Daily Mail. Canadian Broadcasting Corporation again. Synthetic chemicals are now ubiquitous in our lives and widely dispersed in virtually everything we consume and touch. Bisphenol A, that's the, one, the main one. It languished until the 1930s. When it was discovered that it could be used as a synthetic estrogen, it was discovered it could be used as a synthetic estrogen, 1930s. In the 1950s, it was discovered that bisphenol A had the remarkable ability to make plastics more pliable and less prone to crack. Between 1980 and 2000, U.S. production of bisphenol A grew nearly five times, and it is now a ubiquitous component of clear polycarbonate plastics. It's all from the toys from China 
that your young babies are sucking on. It says here to view your fictitious carbon dioxide, carbon dioxide life-giving gas to vegetation output by metric tons of CO2 per person of each country. It says click on the link below from the Earth Friends of the World Resources Institute United Nations Collaborator and they give you the link and I'll put it up on my site at the end of this talk. So you can understand when these people, and these were only some of them, who put out the same ideas of using the needle, inoculating people, they meant to sterilize them. It wasn't just to sterilize them, by the way, because the departments are working with bacteria and viral warfare and chemical warfare departments of the military to find ways of introducing crippling diseases for the Western people that would make them uneligible or ineligible for marriage partners. If the public truly knew the horror that's been inflicted upon them deliberately by mass psychopathic murderers, I would hope they'd still have enough hormones left in them to do something about it. For many, they will never be able to comprehend this as beyond their acceptability level. They look for any excuse, any excuse rather than the real one that stares them in the face. In a court of law, remember, the preponderance of evidence in the absence of an admission, the preponderance of evidence concludes the verdict. And we have so much piles of evidence to prove beyond any doubt that the population of the world has been under silent but deliberate attack their entire lives that it's just Overwhelming. Overwhelming. But Madonna apparently is going through a divorce, and that's all the major news you're getting right now. Perhaps unsurprisingly for some in my audience, and just all too predictable for many, yes, once again, we end up at the depopulation agenda, the agenda to ultimately control the destiny of humanity, which has been written about time and time again in the annals and journals of some of the most esteemed thinkers and writers of the past, including Bertrand Russell, but including many, many, many others that we've documented in previous episodes, like Charles Galton Darwin and Julian Huxley and all of the various people associated with that 19th century gentleman scientist clique which spawned the eugenics movement. But yes, once again, we run up against that ideology, the overwhelming urge to control humanity and shape it into a pliable, cattle-like species for the pleasure and service of the elite. And yes, we find that at just the very time that Bertrand Russell was talking about using these types of substances in just this way, just this type of substance was discovered and two decades later ended up in almost every household in the developed world. Now, I would very much like to be able to leave this episode on a positive note, and there are many ways to see something positive in this particular subject. For example, we can turn to articles like this one alluded to in that Alan Watt clip and some of the others that we've listened to today from the Washington Post, 19th of April, 2008. Canada bans BPA from baby bottles. 
Quote, Canada yesterday became the first country to ban a widely found chemical from use in baby bottles, sparring a leading Democrat in the U.S. Senate to call for legislation that would prohibit use of bisphenol A or BPA in a number of everyday consumer products. We have immediately taken action on bisphenol A because we believe it is our responsibility to ensure families, Canadians, and our environment are not exposed to a potentially harmful chemical. Tony Clement, the Minister of Health, said in a statement. Clement said the action was based on a review of 150 worldwide studies. Quote, it's pretty clear that the highest risk is for newborns and young infants, he said in a telephone interview. End quote. And indeed, such actions, although so far it has only been Canada, such actions are hopeful insofar as they at least demonstrate that the people who are ringing the alarm on this issue are not going unheeded and that we can collectively raise enough of a hue and a cry to be noticed at least by the agencies which at least have to put up the pretense of protecting us from these types of chemicals. That is a type of victory, but not enough. There are also ways to limit our exposure to BPA and absolutely it's 100% necessary that Parents find out about BPA-free baby bottles and make sure that they're using those for feeding their infants. And there are many, many other ways to reduce BPA exposure, including such things as simply not microwaving plastics. But the unfortunate thing is that, as I stated at the beginning of this episode, we are awash in a cocktail of synthetic chemicals that threatens to inundate us and our endocrine systems. Because, unfortunately, the sad truth is that BPA is only one of a class of chemicals known as endocrine disruptors. And, as you might expect, this class of chemical is by no means a scarce thing in our current environment. The Aquatic Toxicology Laboratory at St. Cloud State University studies all of these compounds in generally are referred to as endocrine disruptors. The whole question of what is an endocrine disruptor, and we've got tons of them going into our water supplies. We've got 70,000 chemicals we've never tested for endocrine disruptor, and in one way or the outputs of industry are our own personal use. And they're all ending up out there. Essentially, an endocrine disruptor is any pollutant, any compound that interacts with biological pathways in an organism. In other words, anything that can slightly tweak what we do naturally is an endocrine disruptor. Hormones are the naturally produced compounds that are designed to interact with the endocrine receptors in our bodies. Endocrine disruptors can be these hormones, and for example in urine that we excrete, and that ends up in wastewater treatment plants, of course, contains these hormones. But endocrine disruptors can also be pharmaceuticals that interact with the same endocrine receptors, or they can be very different products, personal care products, masks and fragrances, shampoos and soaps, detergents, that also can interact with these endocrine receptors. Many detergents contain compounds that allow lipids and waters to mix. Usually oil and water don't mix, but we of course, when we try to clean laundry or when we try to clean dishes, we want lipids to come off our dishes, so we use these detergents. And it has turned out, even though their chemical structure is quite different, 
these detergents will interact with the same endocrine receptors in the body, and so they act just like these hormones, um, even though they have a very different origin and chemical structure. Mood-altering drugs, things like Prozac and, and Wellbutrin and other compounds, uh, they are suggested to be endocrine disruptors as well. So, for example, there's been a lot of notoriety with certain drugs. One, for example, would be Prozac, which has been detected in a few fish. So people snicker and make sarcastic comments about our fish being on antidepressants. One example that is really um, causing all of us in the aquatic toxicology community to shake our heads, uh, the emergence of antibacterial soaps. You know, every soap now seems to be antibacterial. Those compounds are endocrine disruptors, and there's absolutely no need for them in most households. Which is in everything now. It's in dial, it's in, your, it's in toothpaste, it's in a number of other products. But we know it has a problem in the long term in being in the environment. The increase in the use of soy, which is an estrogen mimic, as feed for cattle primarily, as other basis for an awful lot of food has contributed enormously to the presence of estrogen-like materials in our environment. Soy has what is usually referred to as phytoestrogens or plant estrogens. So these plants produce a compound that is very similar to the estrogen we find in vertebrates and in, in, in many animals, um, the hormone that is usually referred to as the female hormone, the estrogen. So many soy products, all soy products, contain estrogens formula is based on soy products and so the exposure of infants to phytoestrogens is many times higher than the exposure of it, most adults in their diet to phytoestrogens. We've done a lot of recent testing on bisphenol A plasticizer that we, pretty, we know is an endocrine disruptor. We've tested it on mice and come up with you know, some pretty definitive results in terms of what we're doing. We know it's in the water supply. We know it's in the waste room. It's fairly long-lasting. Um, we know it's more in plastic bottles, which we're kind of, how we're working on. You know, uh, well, we're arguing about still. Canada banned them. The United States hasn't. Europe is ambiguous. But we know that there's an endocrine disruptor that's available to us. And the biggest concern is baby bottles. Yes, the sad truth is that from the detergents that we use to the antibacterial hand soap that we're subjected to on a daily basis, so many of the compounds that we take for granted are, in fact, estrogen-mimicking endocrine disruptors. So where does this leave us? Well, unfortunately, it leaves us in the rather precarious situation of having to react to all of these chemicals as we discover their ill effects. This is obviously unacceptable because we know that these compounds are already having a profound effect on our daily lives. And I would suggest that people start looking not only into endocrine disruptors like BPA, but also into phthalates and antiandrogens and many of the other chemicals which together are contributing to sharply declining sterility among males in the Western world and many, many other effects besides. But rest assured, we'll be coming back and studying those toxins in future episodes of this podcast. But for the moment, we must educate ourselves on BPA and all of these chemicals in order to find out what is being done to us 
But perhaps more importantly, we must continue scrutinizing the agenda of the inbred millionaire elite to understand where they're coming from and where they're headed so we can head them off at the pass. That's it for today. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me this week and asking you to join me again next week for episode 122 of The Corbett Report. Hello, Iceland. <laughs>